here at Epiphany Church here in Brooklyn. Uh, we, we just solely believe that we exist as a church to join Jesus in his mission to redeem our city. I often like to, to push that out there and say that frequently to you guys, just so you're clear with what the vision is. The vision is always about uh, what Jesus has been doing here in this city, uh, this borough of Brooklyn for decades, for years, for centuries. And we're just happy to just play a small part in what he is doing um, we, we just got back, many of us just got back from Philadelphia from a uh, conference called the Thriving Frequency Conference. And uh, the Lord was so gracious to meet us, uh, a little bit tired, but the Lord was so gracious to meet us this week down in Philadelphia. Uh, Thriving Frequency Conference is a conference where churches from all across the countries that are, are planted in, in really inner city areas that are trying to serve their community better, uh, they get together and are well-resourced, well um, well taught, well-informed, well-poured into, nurtured and cared, and then sent back out to those cities to love those cities. Um, and I'm grateful just to be a part. You know, I was at the conference yesterday and it was, it was sold out. And it's amazing. Like, I, I remember being there when it was just a few of us sitting around a table trying to figure out how does inner city ministry work and to see the Lord uh, really grow this conference. If you don't know anything about it, I'd ask you to go and look up Thriving Frequency Conference. It's, a, it's an amazing, amazing deal that the Lord is doing. And grateful for, for my pastor, Dr. Eric Mason. Can we just thank God? You may not know him, but can we thank God for... He, um, Lord has used him in, in major ways, not just for, for me, but to, to pour into really my entire generation, just pour out his life uh, to, to make sure that guys are equipped and ready to uh, do ministry, not just plant churches, but actually live life and do ministry in the inner city. So I'm thankful. Listen, open up to Ephesians. I'm actually really eager to preach, um, preach the word. And so I, I want to jump right in. Man, can we thank God for the worship team? Man. Uh, Ephesians is where we're going. They serve every single week. Um, we, they don't have the luxury of getting a, a week off and, and getting a break. And so I'm um, always encouraged by them. And, and, you know, I know they have uh, auditions coming up, but you guys um, encourage them because they're, they're here every week. Uh, they're here early. They usually open up on Sundays, and so we're grateful for them. All right, Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. When you got it, if you could say amen. amen. All right, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 says this, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse seven, so that the coming ages, he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I simply want to preach from a word, one word topic today entitled intervention. Intervention. Let me pray and then we'll dive in. Lord, this morning we are, are in need of the Holy Spirit, in need of him moment by moment, second by second. And, and this moment is no different. Uh, we need him. We, we need him to, as we open up the scriptures, I need him uh, to proclaim your word, to be faithful to your word. Uh, all of us in here need to hear from you. And so your Holy Spirit does open our ears, take the spiritual earwax out of our ears this morning so we can hear clearly 
from you. And I pray that you would grant me this morning physical strength, physical strength to be able to proclaim your word with faithfulness, with boldness, with clarity, and with passion. Lord, I pray that we'd walk out of here and be doers of the word and not hearers only, lest we deceive ourselves. Let us not walk out of here and say, well, I gathered some information today, but let the hearts be pulled and tugged in in an amazing way through your gospel about Jesus Christ. It's in your son's name that we give glory. Amen. Intervention. Someone say intervention. Mount Whitney in California, uh, it, it is um, a historical site. It is actually the highest point in America, in U.S. It's the highest point, 14,505 feet. It sits above the ground. It, I mean, it's a seven-mile hike to get up there. And many people say it's a hard hike to get up to the top of this mountain. But once you're up on the top of this mountain, the, the view is spectacular. I've never climbed it. I've seen some pictures. The view is amazing. If you look eight miles southeast while you're sitting on or standing on that mountain, if you look eight miles southeast, you'll see what's called Death Valley. Now, Death Valley is interesting because it is actually the lowest point in America, the absolute lowest point. It actually sits 280 feet below sea level, the hottest place in America, literally 134 degrees. It's normally around this, 134 degrees in the shade. And so it is a hot place and that's why they call it Death Valley. But this is interesting. If you think of the contrast, you can sit on Mount Whitney and then miles, you sit on Mount Whitney, which is the tallest point in America, Look over eight miles and then you'll see the lowest point in America. And in many ways, that's what we'll see in our text today. We did not intentionally read verses one through three. I actually, our first Bible study we ever did, I opened up with Ephesians chapter one, uh, chapter two, verses one through three. If you read Ephesians chapter two, one through three, you'll see that's Death Valley, But by the time we get to verse four and seven, the Lord is putting us on Mount Whitney. In fact, let me just walk you through Ephesians 2, one through three. I'll just read it. I won't preach it. And you were dead. Think of you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons in disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Note that we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like mankind. Verse number one tells us that we were dead in our sins. Verse number two tells us you were enslaved in your sin. And then verse number three tells us that we were condemned in our sins. And in many ways, these three verses, they, they, what they really do is affirm a doctrinal position that is a theme throughout the rest of the scriptures and our church holds to, which is called total depravity, which means that every part of you, every part of humankind is infected and tainted by sin. There's no part of you, even the good you do is infected with sin. And then verse three tells us it's by nature. So it's not, you're not a sinner because you sin. You're a sinner because it's a part of your nature. And when you read verses one through three and then get to verse number four, if you stop it, but God, we have a problem. We have a a serious problem. But when we get to verse number four, we get to see how God astonishingly astonishingly, um, uh, intervenes in our life in an amazing, amazing way. Let's read verse number four. It says, but 
God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us. I really want to highlight, and if you underline or write in your Bible, please do that with the first two words, but God. Now, when you, when you think about this, see, what I normally do is every now and then I can foolishly just say God and not define scripturally who God is. And when we think about God, many of us may have different aspects of what God is. So I would love to just walk us through just two. I can't do all of them, but two major attributes about God. When the scripture says, but God, let's see, who is this God? The first attribute I'd like to point out to you, and this is an essential attribute, probably his main one, which is God is holy. God is holy and his holiness demands that all sin be punished. In fact, Isaiah doesn't even just say he's holy. In Isaiah chapter six, verse number three, he says it three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And so the main attribute of God is his holiness. And his holiness means that he is morally perfect, but it also means that he's transcended and separated from all of creation. So he's holy. Second attribute about God that I'd like to just bring up to you today is that he is just. He is a just God and his holiness demands that sin be punished. He would be an unjust, an unjust God, an unjust judge if he sat on the throne of heaven, looked down and saw our sin and did nothing with it. Like think about a human judge. What if a human judge was ruling a case and they found that this person in front of him was, was condemned. He was guilty of whatever criminal charge he was brought up on. He was guilty of it. How unjust would this judge be if he says, I know he's guilty, but I'm going to let him go. He's unfit to be a judge. He needs to be removed off of his seat. And so God, if he looks at our sin, if we read one through three and he does nothing with our sin, he's unjust. But the scriptures tell us over and over again that he is a just God. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to read one through three and then get to the first two words of verse number four, but God, and realize that we got a problem. We have a problem because one through three just told us that by nature, you were a child of wrath. By nature, you were a sinner. I know you're like, man, I didn't come to church this morning to be told I'm a sinner. Well, this is the wrong church because we are all sinners in this room. And God is the only one that is holy and the only one that is just. And so we have a problem, but God intervenes. What I love about it is if you, our problem as sinners is God, but God is also our solution. So in the text, we see that God, the sinner's problem becomes the sinner's solution. In 2004, uh, October 2nd, 2004, a young lady 17-year-old lady named Laura Hatch. I don't know if you've ever heard of this story. Young teenager goes to a party. Laura Hatch goes to this party and uh, her, her parents are waiting up all night for her to come home. She never makes it home. So they call the cops. The cops don't think they move slowly because they think she actually just ran away or she's just out partying, having a good night. And her parents know better. They said, no, something's wrong. So early that morning, they call all of their friends together and they organize this search party and they all start going out and searching. They could not find her the first day. They couldn't find her the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day, the seventh day. The eighth day, a lady finds her car, her Toyota Camry, sitting in a ditch. The eighth day. But here's the interesting thing about it. She was alive while she was in the car. And so the paramedics get there and they say to the lady that found her, it's amazing that she's still alive. 
Like, I don't know if you know, you can go like three or four weeks without food. You can't go three or four weeks without, without water. You can't go three days without water. She's eight days sitting in a car, unconscious, still alive with no water. And the doctors, the paramedics said, this is amazing that she's alive. She should have died of dehydration. Now, the story gets even better. They finally get her to the hospital. When they get her to the hospital, they examine her and find out that she has a blood clot on her brain. But the doctor said the blood clot didn't swell and put pressure on her brain and ultimately kill her because she was dehydrated. And so what should have killed her actually saved her. This is what the newspaper said the next morning. It says surgeons are monitoring a patient, Laura Hatch, after being passed out in a ditch with no water for eight days. It is believed that the dehydration caused up to eight days of unconsciousness may have saved her and prevented the blood clot from swelling and putting lethal pressure on her brain. And so the thing that we normally say, man, dehydration will kill you, that's what saved her. That is what we get in the text today. God should be our problem, but in the text, God becomes the very thing, that he becomes the solution in which we need. He's the one that saves our life. Really, this verse should read, but God who is rich in wrath. Read verse number one through three and then get on your mind the fact that I said he's holy and he's just. When you get that on your mind, the text should tell us that God is rich in wrath, but it does not say that. Text tells us what? Let's look at verse number four. It tells us, but God, listen to this, being rich in mercy. We always think about how amazing grace is, and grace is absolutely amazing. But I would argue that mercy is just as amazing. The fact that God would look at verse number one through three and step in and divinely intervene on your behalf when you couldn't save yourself. The verse opened up in, chapter, in verse number one and said you were dead in your sins. And God comes down and he intervenes on your behalf. But God being rich in mercy. Like someone that knows that you were far off from the Lord should be, re- I know we're a quiet church and we don't like to say too much. We don't like to lift our hands too much, but somebody should be excited at the fact that we serve a God that swooped down from heaven and said, I know they're a sinner, but I'm going to save them anyway. That's the type of God we serve. And the scripture doesn't just tell her that he's merciful. Doesn't just say he has mercy. He says he's rich in mercy. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments on these two words, but God, and says these two words in and of themselves, in a sense, they gather and contain the whole of the gospel. But God being rich in mercy. And so the bad news is you can't earn your salvation. That's problematic for us. But here's the good news. You don't have to earn your salvation, but God. We could stop at the first two words, say amen and go home at the fact that God divinely intervenes on our behalf. He's rich in mercy. Titus chapter three, verse five says this. It says, he saved us. Listen to this. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He saved us according to his own mercy. Here's what's what's really interesting about this verse. The text doesn't just say that he has mercy It says he's rich in mercy. If I was to stand up here before you right now and say, I'm rich, you can gather from me saying that, that I have an abundance of resources. 
The scripture says that he's rich in mercy. This means that he has an abundance of mercy stored up for your sinful trifling, trifling stuff. He's able to be merciful to you. Now, our text today tells us it just says mercy singular. But Paul picks it up in Romans chapter 12, verse number one. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. Multiple mercies, more than just one mercy. God over and over and over and over again intervenes on your behalf. This is the type of God we serve. He's in abundance of mercy. And so the, the thing I want us to do is look at the motivating factor for why he saved us. So one through three, we're dead in our sins. Verse four, but God. And then it tells us how he intervenes because he's rich in mercy. What is the second reason and why he intervened on your behalf? Verse number four answers that. So let's keep going through the text. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love if you're, if you're writing in your Bible, circle that. Because of the great love in which he loved us. Culture will say that I'll love you, but what determines my love for you is how you love me back, what you bring to the table. We're selfish, we selfishly love. But the word here that's used for love is agape. It's unconditional. Like God loved you when you couldn't love him back. A couple years ago, I was on a flight to LA and as I was on the flight, you know, they have the magazines in, in front of you and I was picked up a magazine and I was reading through this magazine and the magazine was talking about the top 10 most wealthiest charitable givers, the top 10 in the US. Bill Gates, you wouldn't be surprised to find out that Bill Gates was number one, $28 billion he gave away to charity. Very generous. Now, in this, in this article, it started to list out the corporations and the charitable mercy ministries that he was giving to. I was specifically looking for a couple of um, businesses to see if he gave to them. One of them was Apple. Now, remember, Bill Gates used to be CEO of Microsoft. So I was like, man, did he give to his competitor? He didn't give to his competitor. You wouldn't find Apple. Bill Gates, as generous as he is, never gave to his enemy. You're not going to find Donald Trump giving to Hillary Clinton. You're not going to find Hillary Clinton's campaign giving to Donald Trump. We normally don't give love or anything to anybody that's an enemy to us. God is completely different. God decided to give to you despite the fact that you were an enemy of God. I know you're in here like, I was never an enemy of God, but can I tell you that his holiness is so holy that even us being righteous, good people is us being an enemy to God. By nature, you, were you are a child of wrath. And so the fact that God is able to grant his love for you is amazing. And it doesn't just tell us that he, he loves you. It doesn't just tell us agape. It says with the great love, he decided to love you. This love was great because it cost God something. It cost him. You know how far he went to reach you? Like how far he dug down? So much so that he was willing to give heaven's best just to save you, his only son. I got two sons and I tried to scratch my head when I read this verse and was thinking about the love of God and the fact that he would give his only begotten son. I was trying to Get in my mind, who in my mind, I was going through my phone going, who would I give my sons as a sacrifice for? There was nobody. I can't think of a person, but that's good people. I certainly ain't giving my sons up for somebody that don't like me. 
But yet God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, he decided to give heaven's best. He could have sent Gabriel. He could have sent the archangel Michael, but he doesn't send any of them. He does because they're not, they wouldn't, their payment of sin would not suffice. He had to send Jesus Christ, his only son, with his great love. You know how many people struggle with the fact that God loves them? You know how many people grew up in a dysfunctional home where their parents didn't love them, their father didn't love them, they've never heard, I love you. God loves you. If you walk out of here and hear nothing else, hear that, that God loves you. Romans chapter five, verse six through eight says, for while we were still weak, love this, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While you were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. And perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But God shows his love. Same word, agape. God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So verse number four defined for us the source of the intervention, God, but God. It defined for us the two reasons, the motivations in which he used to save us. He's rich in mercy and his agape, his great love. Now verses five through six is gonna specify for us the work of the intervention. Let's keep going. Verse number five, I love this. But even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. When did he save us? Even when we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. He didn't wait for you to get it together. You know how many people are like, man, I'll get my life together and then I'll give my life to the Lord. You can't do that. There's not enough in you to get it together. God saves you. God loves you despite the fact that you're dysfunctional. Now, if you're in here and you're like, man, I, I know I'm jacked up. It's no way the Lord, great love, I hear that, agape, I got that, I wrote that down, I'm gonna Google it later, I got it, understand, God can't love me, he, it's no way. Listen to me, the scripture just said to us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, when you understand what dead means, like I, I can't, like I, there's no Greek I can help you out with, dead means dead, like you were spiritually dead and there's two, it's a twofold meaning for, for dead. First, dead is the separation of God. Sin separates you from God. But the other meaning for dead in the text is incapability. You're not capable to get it together. Dead people don't get themselves together. Dead people don't clean themselves up. Dead people can't save themselves. Dead people can't try harder. Dead people don't do better. Dead means dead. You weren't sick. You weren't in the hospital with an IV in need of thorough flu. The doctor didn't give you two pills and say, come back in the morning and see me. No, you were in the morgue with a tag on your toe. You were dead, flat out dead. We didn't need thorough flu. We needed a defibrillator. We were absolutely dead. And God steps in. See, this is what makes the gospel so rich. What makes the gospel so rich is that you can't get yourself together, but you don't have to because God is able to get you together. So the spiritual condition of all of us in here, if you, were, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, this is, so all of us at one point were in verses one through three. And if you've trusted in Jesus, you've received the mercy, the grace, the compassion, and the kindness of God. But if you haven't trusted Jesus, I, I don't want to shy away and tell you, yo, you'll be okay. No, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, you're still in one through three. 
dead in your sins. Let's not sugarcoat this and make it sound nice and make it comfortable. No, we were all at one point dead in our sins and we all needed revival. We needed to be revived and God was able to do that. And so if you're in here and you're like, man, I haven't trusted in Jesus, you're enslaved to one through three, but God is able to make us alive. Let's look at the B part of verse number five because the B part reaffirms the idea of the fact that you can't get it together by yourself. Look at what verse number five says. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, made us alive together with Christ. If you are consistent with verse number four, it starts out telling us, but God. So by the time we get to verse five, it's still talking about God. So if you really want to be, if you really want to know who made you alive, verse four says God. So God is the one that makes us alive. It reaffirms this idea that you can't get it together. Paul also talks about this in Colossians chapter two, verses one through, uh, actually verse 13. And you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, but God, it's more explicit, makes us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all of our sins. What was interesting when I was reading verse number five, when it says he made us alive together with Christ, was that when you read through the first chapter of Ephesians, it often says in Christ or in Christ Jesus, or in the Lord. In fact, let me just walk you through it really quickly. If you're taking notes, note these verses. Verse number three. It says, blessed be the God of our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, look at this, in Christ. Verse number four, even as he has chosen us in him. Verse number seven, in him we have redemption through his blood. Verse number nine, making known to us the mysteries of his will according to his purpose, which he has set before us in Christ. Verse number 11 starts with, in him we have obtained the inheritance. Verse number 12, uh, so, so that you who were the first hope in Christ. Verse number 15, it's like eight verses. Verse number 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Last verse, verse number 20. And he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. At least seven or eight verses I just read said in Christ. But when we get to chapter two, verse five, he doesn't say in Christ. He says with Christ. That's good theology right there. So what he is saying basically in verse number five, even when we were dead in our sins, we were made alive together with Christ. When Christ was made alive after being in a tomb for three days and he was raised up, you were raised up with him. We were made alive, not in Christ, but we're made alive with Christ. And so Christians don't merely believe in the resurrection. We participate in the resurrection according to verse number five. Now, now, verse number five ends with a parenthetical statement that I think is, it's, it's really mind-boggling when you understand what it's saying. Even when we were dead in the trespasses of our sins, you, you guys okay, we can just walk through these scriptures? Verse number five, even when we were dead in our trespasses of our sins, made us alive together with Christ. Look at this, by grace, you have been saved. Verse does not say by works you've been saved. It's very clear by grace you have been saved. Now we, we rejoiced over mercy, right? He was rich in mercy, but grace rocks us because what mercy does is mercy is able to cancel the debt. What grace does is grace puts your name on, the, on, the, on God's bank account and gives you family, it gives you stock options in the family business. 
Grace gives you what you don't deserve. It gives you, mercy lets you on in. Grace blesses you. That's the good thing about grace. And grace gives us all more than we deserve. And and then Paul's going to deal with this in verse 8 and 9, which we don't have time to walk through. But in verses 8 and 9, Paul says, for by grace you have been saved, reaffirming this idea. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no man can boast. Salvation is a gift that you received. It is not a reward that you earn. I can't, I can't beat this drum loud enough. Do you know how many people just say, I got to work harder at this thing? Can't work hard enough at it. And so this is why Christians don't preach, do harder, work harder, try more, do more. No, we preach rest in Jesus. And in, in resting in Jesus, you want to start to look more like Jesus. Text tells us that we were made alive together with him. And by grace, you have been saved. Now, verse number six is, is amazing. Let's just keep going. And raised us up. Again, it says, with him. Like, understand that, that you were raised up with Christ. My wife showed me a video last night before we went to bed. We were having some pillow talk. And she showed me a video of, um, yeah, we have pillow talk. Uh, so we, we, she showed me this video of, this crew that was sitting around the tomb in Jerusalem, sitting around the tomb. I don't know if you saw this video. And they were singing the, the song. We sing it here as well at the anthem. And they were singing. They were going, hallelujah, uh, you, you have won the victory. Hallelujah, you did it for me. Death could not hold you down. Uh, you are the risen king. It's going on and on about the tomb being empty. But what I love most about the tomb being empty is not just the fact that Jesus got up out of the, t- out of the tomb, but the text tells us that you were raised with Christ. And so when I look at the tomb, I rejoice at the fact that my king had the power to get himself up, but it also points me to the fact that you can get up because Christ was able to get up. Let me put Bible there, Romans chapter eight, verse 11. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give, your, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Romans chapter six, verse four. We were buried, therefore, with him into baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And so when we see the empty tomb, which is the greatest evidence that Jesus rose, we don't just rejoice at the fact that Jesus rose, but you should rejoice at the fact that you too will raise. Now, although our physical bodies are still here, spiritually it tells us we were raised with Christ. And so you too have been raised, but you weren't just raised with Christ. Verse six gives us more good news. Look at what verse six says. And we were raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Like that is an astonishing statement that that we are seated with Christ. Now the text tells, if you go to, back to Ephesians 1.20, it says that Christ is seated on the right hand of the Father. That's a position of power. Christ isn't lazy just sitting down. No, him being seated points to the fact that the work is finished. Like when you're done with work, you sit down, especially if it's work that you're doing physical labor. When you're all done with it, you just sit on down and take a seat and just relax. God is seated at the right hand, pointing to the fact that there was nothing left for him to do as it relates to salvation of sinful people like you and I. But the point, the, the point of the text isn't just that Christ was seated, but that you were seated with him. So what does that mean? That means that I no longer, if Christ doesn't have to work any longer to complete salvation, the work has been completed. If we're seated with him, 
you no longer have to work. Not even no longer, you don't have to work for your own salvation. It has been done, which is amazing to me. Because when you think of the, the, the priesthood in the Old Testament, they would go into the holies of holies, have a string tied around their leg so that if the presence of God was too hot for them, they would drop dead and they would pull them on out. And so they were, what they would do is they would go into the temple, the holies of holies, and they would try to perform the sacrifice on Yom Kippur and get out as quick as possible. But the text tells us that our Lord performs the sacrifice and sits on down. That's good news about how Christ does. And so the text tells us today that you and I are seated with Christ. He's seated in a position of power. Three times it says with him in our verse. I don't know if you picked that up. We were made alive together with Christ. We are raised up with Christ and we're seated with Christ as well. Verse number seven. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The eternal, when it says the coming ages, it's talking about the end of time where everything ceases. When history stops, the scripture says that he's going to show off his immeasurable grace. What's interesting about this is when you think of this word show, what it's showing us is exhibit. He's going to exhibit, he's going to put you on display. You are the trophy of God's grace. Like, consider that. I was watching MTV Cribs years ago, and anytime you watch MTV Cribs, they always flossing, right? They want to show how many cars they got in their garage. They want to show you their watch collection, their sneaker game. Jesus opens up the closet of grace and points to you. So when the angels, if the angels ever ask God, God, show us your sovereignty, he can point to creation. If they say, Lord, show us your holiness, he can point to the law. If they say to God, show us your faithfulness, he'll say, look at Israel, I was able to keep them. If he says, show us your love, he can point to the cross. But when they say, when the angels say to God, show us your grace, he'll point to you. Like consider that. He'll say, I was able to save a fool like this and bring him into my kingdom. And it's all the work that I have done. And so over and over again, we'll see the text will tell us that he has immeasurable riches in his grace. It's, it's, it, you can't count his grace. But the text doesn't just tell us grace. Look at the rest of it. So that in the coming ages, he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness in Christ Jesus. It is the kindness of God, people, that leads us, leads us to salvation, leads us to repentance. God's kindness. You know how many people think about God and think about his wrath? We think about God, we don't think, oh man, he's a kind God. We think wrath. But the scripture just said it is in his kindness. Luke chapter 15, I love Luke 15 because Luke 15 um, is a story. Jesus goes through three parables over and over again. He goes through, one, I mean, it's like a Tyler Perry movie. He just goes from one scene to another scene to another scene. He starts with the lost coin. He goes to the lost sheep. Or actually, he starts with the sheep, goes to the coin, and then he ends Luke 15 with the, the, the story, the parable of the prodigal son. We're talking about the kindness of God. And in the prodigal son, the story goes on, if you don't know it, that this son comes to his father and he says, man, give me my inheritance. And in other words, go ahead and I'm going to treat you like you're dead. I want all of your stuff. 
And then the father gives him his inheritance, sells a piece of land, gives him all of the money. The prodigal son goes and he squanders all the money on reckless living and prostitutes. He finally comes to himself and he's walking back to the father's house. And as he's walking back to the father's house, it is interesting to note as he's walking back, the father doesn't even let him get to the house. Look at the story. The father doesn't let him get to the house. As he's walking back, the father sees him from afar off and runs to the field, hugs him, kisses him, says, bring a ring, bring the fatted calf, bring my robe, throw a party. This son that was dead is lost. That is the kindness of our father. That story points to us as sinners, but it also points to the kindness of God. And the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. Have you in this room trusted in the kindness, the rich in mercy, the great, the immeasurable grace of our God? Like think of the, the, the terms that described, described him. He was loving. He was kind. He is, he, he is, um, um, he shows grace. Like these are the words that describe our God. Have you trusted in that God today? I, I would go so far as like, I never think that everybody in the room is, I've trusted in Jesus. I never go that. I always am scratching my head saying, man, Lord, who are you saving today? As your gospel is being preached, whose heart are you changing today? And maybe you're in this room and we can play something soft. Maybe you're in this room and you haven't trusted in Jesus. Maybe you're still stuck in verses one through three, which shows us our sinful nature. And maybe you haven't given your life to Jesus. Today would be a good day to do that. Nothing spooky, nothing over the top. See, that's what I love about grace is grace isn't over the top. Grace is in terms of your ability to be able to participate in salvation. Listen, there's nothing we bring to the table. That's what I love about grace. Grace doesn't allow you to bring anything to the party. God in Jesus Christ has done it all. And so maybe you're in here and you're every head bow, every eye closed. Maybe you're, you're considering what it would look like to give your life to Jesus. This kind, merciful, gracious God, what would it look like for me to trust in that Jesus? What would my family say? What would my friends say? How would this impact my life? Well, let me be honest with you. When you meet Jesus, it changes everything. Your appetite is no longer the same. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are. You meet Jesus and he changes the trajectory of your life. And my hope and prayer, my fear is that you would walk in here, hear about this kind, merciful God and walk out of here and do nothing with it. But my hope and prayer today for all of us is that we would trust in Jesus Listen to me. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins. That is when God made you alive. Every head bowed and every eye closed. If you're in here and you're bold enough to say, man, I know I haven't trusted in the Lord. Maybe you were in here and you've been going through the religious cycle in your life. I pray, I, I read, but I never understood what the cross actually meant. The cross means that your sin, your shame, your dysfunction was completely placed on him. And when it was placed on him, 
if you trusted in him, he, he did a trade. He did a swap. He gave you his perfect life. He gave you his righteousness. It's the only merit that we're able to stand on. If you have not trusted Jesus in here, would you just slip your hand in the air and say, I want to give my life to the Lord. I want to trust in this Jesus. If you have not trusted in him, would you slip your hand in the air? I see that hand. Tomorrow is not promised. Do not walk out of here if you haven't trusted in Jesus. Listen, Fulton Street is a busy street. You can walk across the street to the bodega and get hit by a car today. Have you, if that is the case, will you spend eternity with Jesus? Eternity is a long time, people. And at one point within our lives, we will have to stand before the Lord. What will you say when you stand before him? Will you base your religiosity and your merit, your good standing on your own works? Or will you point to Jesus and say, he completed the work? I want to pray for that hand that was raised and in addition to that, maybe there's somebody in here, you've trusted in Jesus, you've, you believe in Jesus, but you'll go so far as to say, man, I really haven't submitted my life to the gospel. This, this message that you preach today, that's very common to me. I've heard that before and I go out and I do my own thing. If you've walked away from the Lord, would you raise your hand? you have not been faithful to living according to the standard that Jesus has set, the bar is high. If you've lowered that bar, would you raise your hand in this room? Thank you for your boldness. I'm going to pray for, for these two. Um, I'm not even going to ask them to come up. Every head bow, keep your head bow and your eye closed. I'd love to talk to you afterwards, but I just want to pray for you. Can we thank God for the, for the soul that gave their life to the Lord today? You, I, talk, I, talk to Luke, I talked about Luke chapter 15, but do you realize that in Luke 15, it says that all heaven rejoices over one. Heaven is rejoicing. Pray that we wouldn't be quiet. Father, I want to pray for these two hands that were raised. One for the salvific work of the cross of Christ. Your cross is powerful. Your cross has the ability to take an unregenerate heart, a dead heart. Scripture tells us we were dead. And your cross has the ability to breathe life into us. We thank you, Lord. And that miracle is not something that we take lightly. It's not something that's very common to us. But it is that very miracle that we come to know you. Eternity is a long time. We get to spend that with you, those who have trusted in Jesus. But contrary, eternity is a long time to spend in hell, separate from you. Thank you for this soul. Father, I also want to pray for the hand that was raised and maybe hands that weren't raised in here, that weren't, couldn't really be honest to the point that they know that they really haven't submitted their life to the Lord. We want to walk 
according to obedience. We desire to look more like Jesus. That is the one trajectory every one of us in this room is on, that we are to look more and more like Jesus every single day. So Lord, I pray for those in here that didn't raise their hand and the one that did, thank you for a recommitment back to you. And Lord, would you, would your Holy Spirit be so convicting when we get into those moments where we don't want to walk with you, where we want to do our own thing? Would you help us to wrestle well? Would you convict our hearts? Never let us participate in sin with no conviction at all. That's wrath. But Lord, would you convict our hearts? Thank you for this word, God. We thank you for the ability to, to be able to call you our God. And you call us your people. It is by your grace that we are saved. In Christ's name, amen.